Hi, this is Jeff Kitchhaven of Jeff Kitchhaven Commercial Mediation, and you're listening to the IP Fridays podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Ken, Suzanne and I are welcoming you to episode 145 of IP Fridays. Today my co-host Ken Suzanne is interviewing Jeff Kitchhaven and they talk about mediation in intellectual property matters. But before we jump into the interview, I have news for you. The enlarged board of appeal of the European Patent Office has decided the cases G1 and G2 of 22 And the Enlarged Board of Appeal is setting new standards for the transfer of a priority entitlement. Let's say the first applica patent application was filed by a U.S. individual and the second following um, patent application that is claiming the priority of the first patent application is filed by uh, another entity, for example, a company. Then the Enlarged Board of Appeal now decided that there is an implicit agreement, at least it is presumed, as long as there is no evidence to the contrary. So, in fact, the applicants do not have to be identical for successfully claiming priority rights. Kanye West, a rapper with anti-Semitic history, has filed Uh, trademarks for the term use, Y-E-W-S, for example, for gambling, finance and restaurants. I personally find that quite sickening that he's using trademark law for his anti-Semitic purposes. Let's see if these trademarks are actually registered. The EU IPO has just shot down trademark applications for virtual firearms as trademarks. The trademark application just depicted a, a firearm and, and the trademark applications claimed, for example, class 9 for downloadable files. And the EU IPO decided that this trademark lacked a distinctive character. Now let's jump into the interview with Jeff Kitchhaven. Our guest today on the IP Fridays podcast is Jeff Kitchhaven. Jeff is an independent mediator of business disputes with an international practice. He has over 23 years of experience in mediation, including serving as a mediator in intellectual property, information technology, and entertainment disputes. Jeff is a distinguished fellow of the International Academy of Mediators, and he is a member of the American Law Institute. He was the past chair of the Entertainment Law and Intellectual Property Section of the Los Angeles County Bar Association. Jeff has been ranked in Chambers USA on the national list of top mediators for six straight years and is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, and a cum laude graduate of the Harvard Law School. Welcome, Jeff, to the IP Fridays podcast. 
Kim, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Jeff, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure thing, Kim. Thanks for asking. I graduated from law school in 1980. I was only 23 years old when I graduated. I became a litigator, joined a business litigation firm in Los Angeles and practiced there from 1980 to 1995. I made partner, but eventually, Ken, I had to come to grips with the fact that I didn't like it. I, I My career was just not going the way that I wanted it to go. I left the bigger firm. I went into small firm practice with Dean Pragerson, who later became a federal judge here in Los Angeles and has served with great distinction. After Dean became a judge, I had to figure out what to do. And mediation was coming into its own at that time as something a lawyer could do full time as a profession. The way I viewed it, it was close enough to law practice that I was not just throwing away everything that I had learned and all the experience that I had obtained, but it was far enough away that I felt I was doing something different. I had some money in the bank so I could afford to take a chance, and I've never looked back. It's one of the best decisions I ever made. And Jeff, what was it that uh, led you to become a mediator? Was there something about mediation that drew you in? And what would you say is the hardest part of your job? Those are great questions, Ken. The hardest part of the job is kind of surprising to many people when I say it, and that is that you need a new case every day. As a litigator, Ken, you probably measure the length of your engagements in months or sometimes years, but for mediators, we measure the length of our engagement in days. So you're always out there. The book-to-bill ratio is very important, and the need to get new people to hire you every day is clearly one of the most challenging parts of the job. What led me to become a mediator? You know, I had a couple of mediations when I was an advocate, and I thought, wow, this works. Clients are happy. Cases get settled. It was terrific. So I took some mediation training initially just to become a better advocate in the process. But wouldn't you know it, I had to play the role of mediator in some of the role plays, and I just took to it. It was it's it's for me, man. It's for me. Sure. Now, if you had to give advice to someone today who who was interested in becoming a mediator, what would you tell them? What should they be doing today to prepare for that role? Ken, what someone should do to prepare for the role as a mediator, let's start with the business advice. You have to save some money. You have to have some money in the bank. It takes time to build the practice. And while you're building the practice, you really don't have the profit. You really don't even have much revenue at the very beginning. When you're building the factory, as they say, you're not yet producing or selling the widgets. Mm -hmm. So you have to have the financial cushion in order to get the practice started. Interesting. Now, let's let, let's focus in on intellectual property. Why is mediation suited for IP disputes? And does it work best for one particular type of IP, let's say patents versus trademarks or copyrights? And I love mediating IP cases. I do lots of them. And mediation is very well suited 
for IP disputes of all types, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, you name it. And the reason it works well in IP disputes really comes back to the same reason mediation works well in many other kinds, really all kinds of business and commercial disputes. You know, in an intellectual property case, as in so many others, people go through the stages of grieving for loss, denial, anger, acceptance. Parties to lawsuits are angry. And eventually, they accept that they likely can't get everything they want, at least not at a price they're willing to pay or in a time frame they find acceptable. So people look to get cases and disputes behind them. In a sense, you need to clear out the old headaches to make room for the new headaches coming down the pike. So what does the mediation process do? The mediation process helps people identify their options and their trade-offs. It helps people analyze those trade-offs and pick among them. The goal really can is to give people the opportunity to make a clear, strong decision in a calm, informed environment. And when we do that, settlement is the natural byproduct of the process. And it could be anything from an intellectual property dispute to any other form of business and commercial dispute. It works. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been mediating disputes for a long time. How has how has mediation changed over the years, particularly in connection with IP disputes? What have you seen happening and where is it heading uh, now that we're in 2023, almost 2024 in a number of months? Ken, I appreciate the opportunity to answer that. My I left my crystal ball at the dry cleaners and I, I don't have it on hand today, so I really can't speculate too much about the future. I've been surprised many times. Yeah. But let's talk about how we got to where we are, and then people can make their own judgments about where we're going. Mm -hmm. The biggest change that I have seen over the years is that there is much more of what I would call strategic behavior in mediation every year. You know, 25 years ago, mediation was, in so many cases, the ritual day to take a lawsuit which had outlived its usefulness and put it out of its misery. Today, people are more aggressive and strategic in their negotiations. They go for the gold, as you might say. People on the first day of mediation often try to get the 24-karat gold-plated result. If it works, it's not likely to work, but if the strategy works, great. If not, people can go back to making reasonable trade-offs and deals in order to get difficult situations behind them. So when mediations open, we see a lot more strategy. Every year, I think most experienced mediators will tell you that fewer and fewer cases settle on the day of the mediation. So follow-up is more important. You know, it's been the conventional wisdom for generation upon generation that almost all cases settle. That's no different. Now though, follow-up after the day, initial day of the mediation is is critical, more critical than ever. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about best practice tips. What would you say are some of the top best practice tips for parties um, 
who decide to submit their disputes to mediation. The practice tips, Ken, first let's look at the big picture, and then we'll dig down a little bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. In terms of the big picture, there are two mantras, two mental disciplines that I would suggest to people. One is to remind yourself, particularly if you're a lawyer, that you cannot be both curious and on the attack at the same time. The mind just can't accommodate those. In mediation, it's better to be curious. It's better to learn. It's better to gather as much information and the best information you can for your client. Because the more information and the better the information you have, the better able your client will be to make good decisions. The second mantra, while mediation is a great place to make a deal, it is a lousy place to prove a point. The only places you even have a chance to prove a point are in the courtroom or in an arbitration. So I sometimes advise people in a mediation, try to limit your comments and limit your thinking to things which will help us move toward making a deal. That's when mediation can succeed. And in terms of the micro level, preparation is critical. Yeah. And the single most important point that is overlooked in preparation is to have a telephone call or an online chat with your mediator after the mediator gets your mediation brief and before the mediation day. Because that's when you can give people, you can give the mediator the proverbial rest of the story. You can talk about the emotional factors more easily. You can talk about the people and personality factors more easily. And those are the things that oftentimes are the real challenges, the real barriers to settlement in the, in the negotiation, in the mediation. And if the mediator knows about these challenges in advance, the mediator is going to be in a much better position to help you. Mm-hmm. What about contracts? You know, parties, when they draft their agreements, often have a mediation clause. What are your thoughts about a mediation clause in a contract? And my thoughts about mediation clauses are a little counterintuitive. I have serious reservations about them. In my experience, when people show up to a mediation only because there's a contractual requirement or only because a court has made them, Ken, in those situations, so often people's hearts are not really in it. They're there because they're compelled to be there, not because they want to be there. And it's much harder to make a deal in those circumstances. My sense is that by now, almost all lawyers should know about mediation and its benefits. I don't think we should have to coerce people into mediation. In past generations, Ken, lawyers were able to initiate the topic of settlement conversations and have those unfacilitated conversations by themselves when the time was right. In our generation, I think it should be equally true that people, should, lawyers should be able to convene a mediation, raise the subject with opposing counsel without any shame, without any embarrassment, without any admission of weakness or lack of, of strength or confidence in the case, and people should be able to convene mediations 
without the coercive elements of contracts or courts making them do it. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. Now, Jeff, we often hear the adage, timing is everything. When would be the right time to mediate if you're in a long protracted dispute? And it's always a judgment call. When is the right time to mediate? My sense of it is that we go back to that paradigm of denial, anger, acceptance. There are times in a case when you sense that your client is kind of getting sick and tired of litigating. They're ready to move on. They've got new challenges in their lives, in their careers, in their businesses. And yet this old lawsuit is hanging on. And you may get a sense as a lawyer that your client needs a little nudge. You need a little help to get your client completely out of anger and into acceptance more fully. If you're at that emotional inflection point with your client, that is a great time to mediate. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if you sense that your client has unrealistic expectations, if you get a sense that emotion and reason are just not in proper balance in your client's analysis of the case, and that there are viable possibilities for settlement that are out there, if you need a little help dealing with unrealistic expectations, mediation is an excellent place to do that because mediators are good at staying calm. Mm -hmm. And when the mediator stays calm and will not engage in argument with you or your client, well, if we're not going to argue, we have to do something else. And that something else is usually conversation. And in a calm conversation, unrealistic expectations oftentimes come back down to planet Earth, and the last vestiges of anger can often give way to acceptance. And that's how mediators help to get cases settled. Interesting. Now, Jeff, technology also plays a role in mediation, and I understand people can mediate online. Should a party consider mediating online or in person? What What are your thoughts on that? Online, in person, can, at the risk of sounding like a law school professor, it depends. There are trade-offs, and there's no one-size-fits-all rule. I can tell you, though, that in the patent cases, in the technology cases, we are very often dealing with people all over the world in different countries, and we may need to mediate quickly. We may need to mediate in a matter of days or weeks rather than months. And when those are the circumstances, we are very likely to be mediating online because coordinating people's travel schedules, can that can take a very long time. So in the IP cases, particularly patent and tech cases, we're online. And then you have to ask yourself in each circumstance, how are your clients going to react better to the different environments? Sometimes when people are online, they're more relaxed because they're in the comfort of their own home or office. But sometimes, Ken, they become disengaged because they're in, in the comfort of their own home or yeah. office. When people are in person, sometimes they are more focused, but sometimes they become more anxious. 
So it's a case-by-case determination, which the lawyers should make in consultation with the mediator, taking all of the circumstances into account. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of IP cases focus on hard sciences and technical things. Does a mediator, mediator need to be an engineer or a scientist or a technical expert in order to do his or her job? And this is a frequent question. Does your mediator need to be a PhD in the subject matter of the dispute? Yeah. Let's dig into that, Ken. In my view, it's not always necessary. And this is a very important question. First of all, let's take a look at the technical skills of the lawyers that are involved. Generally, the lawyers do not have the same level of expertise as their clients do with respect to the subject matter of the particular dispute. So lawyers, many times, do not need to have the same kind of technical expertise. So why should mediators? Next, let's look at the judges and certainly the juries who are adjudicating these disputes if you go to court. So most judges, like most lawyers, come from the big four undergraduate majors political science, economics, English, and history. Mm-hmm. I think if you survey the lawyers in your firms, you'll see that those are the four most common majors. It's probably right. the most common majors among judges. They're not technical experts. And certainly jurors are not scientists, engineers, or technical experts. And we still trust them by and large to do a good job of their jobs of decision-making. Mediators are not decision makers. Remember that. So in addition to that, as a mediator, I look at it and say, well, what's missing in the situation? Generally speaking, when I do a patent or technology case, there is no shortage of scientific or engineering expertise already being devoted to the case. What's missing is generally not more technical expertise. There's something else that's missing, and mediators have other other domains of expertise. We are experts in helping people communicate better, make better decisions, and get cases settled. So often, that is the expertise which is missing, which the technical experts are not able to bring to the table at all. And finally, Ken, In so many cases, even the most technically intense patent cases, the key issue may not be validity or infringement. The key issue may be damages. People need help figuring out what exactly is it over which they're fighting. And once they figure out what the pie is, how big the pie is and what it looks like, they're in a better position to determine how hard and how long they want to fight. So in many cases, maybe the better question is whether your mediator has some background in economics or accounting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's the key issue. Most, Most often though, it's dealing with the personalities. And that too is something where so many mediators excel. Definitely. Now, Jeff, if one is getting ready for their first mediation or their 50th mediation, From your perspective, what should they do to prepare? Ken, I'm so glad you asked. Preparation is critical. You wouldn't go into a deposition without preparing for it. 
Similarly, you shouldn't go into a mediation without preparing for it. There are many steps. Let's go over it quickly. First of all, submit a good brief to the mediator. You know, you only have one chance to make a good first impression. And so many times, the brief is the way where you communicate to the mediator that you're well prepared, you're putting your client's interests ahead of your own, and that you deserve the help from the mediator that you're coming to get. So submit a good brief. Generally, exchange those briefs so that the other side knows the state of the art of your thinking and submit a separate side brief to the mediator with whatever confidential information may be appropriate. Then, as we mentioned before, talk to the mediator. Tell the mediator the rest of the story. Give the mediator the information about the personalities, the psychology, the interpersonal aspects, the emotional issues at play, so that you and the mediator together can figure out how best to address these people issues that oftentimes are so critical to reaching a settlement. When you have a tentative plan for the, medi for the mediation day, talk to your client. Let your client know, here's how we're likely to proceed. I had a conversation with the mediator. Here's what's coming down the pike. And then at the very beginning of the mediation day, meet privately with your mediator and your client before the mediation quote unquote begins. Let everybody take the emotional pulse. Let your client develop a little chemistry with the mediator. Many times, Ken, you might know, the lawyers might know the mediator. The clients, generally speaking, do not. So let the mediator develop a little chemistry with the client at the beginning of the day. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be asking the mediator for help in persuading your client to take a little less or pay a little more to get the deal done. And if the mediator has had the opportunity to develop a little chemistry, a little rapport with your client at the beginning of the mediation day, that rapport and chemistry can pay off big time when you get to the crunch at the very end of the mediation day. And then, then let it rock, Ken. Sometimes you have an opening joint session, sometimes you don't. But that those are some of the critical steps of preparation that will help maximize the chance that the day will generate significant progress and hopefully a settlement. Jeff, we're coming near the end of our podcast. I have one final question for you, and that is, what if you don't settle on the day of the mediation? What are the next steps? And if people don't settle on the mediation day, you must be prepared for that. And the preparation for that starts early. It starts when you select your mediator, because as part of your due diligence on your mediator, make sure that your mediator has a good reputation for following up. It's more and more necessary, more and more important every year. When you leave the mediation, if you haven't settled, set a date for follow-up that the mediator should check in with you maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. Maybe there's some event coming up in the mediation, like a key deposition or a court appearance or a court hearing where something might happen to change the calculus on both sides. So figure out when does it make sense for the mediator to follow up, get it on calendar. 
If the mediator is not following up with you appropriately, it's always appropriate for you to call or email the mediator, hey, this has happened in the litigation, circumstances are changing, people's viewpoints are changing, there may be new opportunities for settlement, let's talk. And Ken, it has been a privilege and an opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to appear on the IP Fridays podcast. Jeff, fabulous. Really, really interesting information and guidance. We appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend time with us here on the IP Fridays podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.